Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Today we are in the book of Colossians. We've been reading through the Bible and this week you're going to be reading Colossians. You have the notes and a Bible reading plan. It shouldn't take you very long. The good thing about these prison epistles, it doesn't take you long to read through them. A lot easier than reading through Isaiah for sure, isn't it? If you're our guest, we have been going through the Bible. We began last September taking a book a week and preaching out of one passage a week. And uh, we are headed toward the finish line. This week you'll be reading through Colossians. And if you need any of the notes that you've missed, we have all of those. You can put them in a notebook, just a a survey, a little bit of uh, notes about them. Today, I'm going to focus on chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. But let me share with you a couple of things. I mentioned to you that Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Titus, the prison epistles. Paul's in prison when he's writing these. Ephesians really talks about the body of Christ. Colossians talks about the head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. You do know that Jesus is the head of the church, not the pastor, not the pope, not anybody else. Jesus is the head of the church. This letter was intended to combat or uh, to, to correct some of the heresy that had creeped in there concerning Jesus Christ and also to encourage believers in living the Christian life. He mentions in chapter two that we are rooted in him, that we are alive in him, that we are hidden in him, that we're complete in Jesus Christ. So it would be inconsistent for a person who claims to know Jesus Christ to not live for him. It's one thing to say I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm born again, I'm a believer, But that also should be backed up by the way that we live. Because when you meet Jesus, you never stay the same. You begin to grow. You know, he didn't save us in our sin to leave us in our sin. He delivers us from our sin and wants us to live for him. Supernaturally, we are saved. And the natural response to that supernatural salvation is to live for Jesus Christ. So today... I want to read verses 15, 16, and 17, but let me call your attention to something first. The first four verses in chapter 3 talk about being heavenly minded. When you focus on Christ, you give your life to him, you, you become heavenly minded. You're thinking about your salvation. You're thinking about Jesus. But then beginning in verse four, all the way down, or excuse me, verse five, all the way down to verse 14, it talks about some of the things that we throw off, that we take off, we change, we do away with it. And then we put on the new man. And then it tells us how we're to live. Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. If a transformation takes place in Jesus Christ, and it does, then it affects how we live. It affects our heart. It affects our mind. It affects our life. That's what we're going to look at for a few moments. First of all, he talks about a healthy heart. Now, what I mean by that is not your physical heart, because you do a lot of aerobic exercise trying to make sure your heart still pumps and is staying in good shape. We're talking about our heart spiritually. In case you didn't know it, being a follower of Jesus Christ does not exempt you from problems. Is there anyone here today that doesn't have any problems? I want to meet you. Because first of all, you can't be real. All of us have problems. Jesus himself was honest with his disciples. In John 16, he said, these things have I spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Later, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Problems are the price we pay for living in this world. Jesus didn't stop there, though. In, back to John 16, the rest of that verse, Jesus said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus gave the last gift he gave his disciples. In John 14, 27, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, Jesus gave them peace. He said, I'm going to give you my peace. But he also gave a command. I want you to take the peace that I'm giving you and live it out in your life, no matter what's going on in your circumstances, in the problems that you're facing. And Paul made a similar point here in verse 15 when he said, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let's talk about the peace of God. First of all, let's notice the caliber of peace we're talking about. There's some implications here that you need to understand because most of the time when you read the word peace in the dictionary, it's the absence of conflict or the absence of turmoil. And if you'll look at the first 14 verses of chapter 3, at the beginning, especially in verse 5, you're going to see that all of this stuff that used to be in our life before we met Jesus basically could be summed up in one word, turmoil. Get rid of all of this anger and malice and hostility and all of that. You can look at the people in the world today without Jesus, and they are in turmoil inside. They may not show it, but inside there's a common denominator. It's turmoil. It's a lack of peace. Well, the peace that God gives us affects three areas. First of all, we have peace with God. Can you imagine trying to umpire a baseball game or referee a football game and not even be in the stadium? Can't do it. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to have this kind of peace if you're not in God's kingdom. 
And the only way to be in God's kingdom, according to Romans 5.1, it says we are justified by the Baptist church. <laughs> no, by faith. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many religious people today who are trying to find peace. They're doing all kinds of works, penance, and, and punishing themselves, and trying to do this and try to do that, and they just can't find peace. The reason is you have to come through Jesus Christ. It's not a church. Nobody grants it to you. You weren't born with it. It comes through Jesus Christ. You cannot have the peace of God until you know the God of peace. And the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ. But it also affects our self. You see, in contrast to the heavenly-minded person in the first four verses, the turmoil is listed in verses 5 through 14. It's a bunch of negative actions it's, it says that we're not at peace with ourselves until you have the peace of God. You look around the world today and you see a vacuum in people's lives. They're empty. So what do they try to do? They fill it with immorality or one-night stands. They try to fill it with greed and with money and all kinds of material things, and they just can't find peace. Solomon's a perfect example. If anybody had everything there was to have, he had it. Still didn't have peace when he walked away from God until he came back to him at the end of his life. You see, people just are never satisfied without Jesus. We used to sing an old song that said, I am satisfied with Jesus. Some of you folks with hair the color of mine, you know that song. Younger generation doesn't have a clue about that song. They've got a clue, but they don't have a clue about that song. I, I couldn't. I read a story of two old friends who bumped bumped into each other on the street, and one of them looked very miserable. He looked like he was almost in tears. And his friend said, "What in the world's happened to you, old friend? What's the matter?" He said, "Well, let me tell you. Three weeks ago, my uncle died and left me forty thousand dollars." Well, congratulations, that's a lot of money. And then the fellow said, well, then two weeks ago, a cousin I never even knew died and left me $85,000 free and clear. Well, it sounds like you've really been blessed, man. And then he said, you don't understand. Last week, my great aunt died and I inherited a quarter of a million dollars more. Well, now the friend was really confused. He said, well, then why in the world do you look so glum? He said, man, this week, nothing. <laughs> that pretty much describes how the world is. They just can't get enough. And they're trying to grab all they can, and when they get it, they found out they're still empty. But see, only the peace of God can bring peace with yourself. To know that you've been forgiven, you've been saved, you've been born again. But it also brings peace in a third area, and that's with other people. If you look at verse 8, 
Look what it says. But now yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. That speaks of how people treat one another. But when you have the peace of God in your life, it begins to affect how you treat other people. And man, you can tell by looking around the world, there are a lot of people that don't have the peace of God, do they? Just by the way that they treat one another. It means to allow the peace of God to permeate your life in such a way that you can forgive and that you can be patient and you can love and be kind to other people. Only God can put that peace in your heart. Y'all remember the Peanuts cartoon? Lucy one day was talking to Charlie Brown, said, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. Charlie Brown said, well, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy said, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) Folks, I want to tell you, that's not the way believers are. Because he puts a peace in our heart. We can be tolerant. We can be patient. We can be, we can persevere with other people. Be steadfast. That's the caliber of peace we're talking about. You have peace with God, which gives you peace on the inside of yourself and helps you with peace with other people. That's the caliber we're talking about. But then notice the control of peace because he says, let the peace of God rule. The word means to umpire. It's an athletic term. It means whatever conflict arises in your life, whether it's within yourself or with other people, you have a choice to make. You cannot control all of your circumstances. You can't even control how other people treat you. But you do have a choice in how you respond to whatever those circumstances are. We can't always control the stuff around us. I got amused at a sign that was over a copy machine in the office. It said, for problems, call extension 356. Well, underneath it, somebody scratched through and said, no thanks. I've got plenty of my own already. (laughs) And we all do. All of us have problems. All of us have difficult circumstances. But even in the midst of those circumstances, the peace of God can stay right there. Do you you ever known anybody that just seems to worry about everything? I've had relatives like that. I mean, they can make something out of nothing. They're just worried all the time. Old man was standing on a bus. A young man asked him, sir, can you tell me what time it is? The old man didn't even answer him, just kind of looked away and ignored him. The young man walked off, and one of his older man's friends came up to him. He said, why were you so rude and discourteous to that young man? Because he asked for the time. He said, if I'd given him the time of day, next he would have wanted to know where I'm going. And then he might talk about our interests. And if we did that, he might invite himself to my house. And if he did that, he'd meet my lovely daughter. And if he met her, they'd fall in love. And I don't want my daughter marrying someone who can't afford a watch. I know people like that. They have no peace. They're just worried all the time. 
That's not the way we're supposed to live. You're supposed to let the peace of God rule, to be in charge of your life no matter how difficult things get with you. The story's told of a king who offered a prize to an artist who could paint the best picture of peace. Many artists entered and tried. The king looked at all the pictures, but there were only two that he really liked, and he had to choose between them. One picture was of a calm lake. The lake was a perfect mirror for the peaceful towering mountains behind it. Overhead was a big blue sky with fluffy white clouds, and all who saw this picture thought it was a picture of perfect peace. And you can picture that, can't you? But the other picture had mountains too. They were rugged and bare, and above the mountains was an angry sky from which rain and lightning fell, and down the side of the mountain tumbled a foaming waterfall. It didn't look peaceful at all. But when the king looked, he saw behind the waterfall a tiny bush in a crack in the rock, and in the bush a mother bird had built her nest. And there in the midst of the rough, angry water sat the mother bird on her nest. Perfect peace. The king chose the second picture, and when they asked him why, he said, peace does not mean to be in a place where there's no noise, trouble, or hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of all those things and still be calm in your heart. Peace is not the absence of conflict or problems. Peace is the presence of God in your heart during those times. Only believers, only Christians can do that. The world knows nothing about it. A healthy heart is one that has the peace of God dwelling there. But he also talks about our mind. A holy mind. If you look at verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Some of the Christians in Colossae were being swept away by heresies of that day. And so Paul writes this and he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now some people, what are the word, what does the word of Christ mean? There's some who took that to mean every word that Jesus said and only that would be it. And then there are others who say, no, it's words about Christ. But folks, it's both. It's not only the words of Jesus, but all about him. It means the word of God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Why the word of God? Why is that so important today? For one thing, the word of God is compared to a light in so many ways, and we are needing a light in this world of darkness. Amen. So there's some implications here. One would be the maturity from the Word of God. I mentioned the word light. The Scripture talks about Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Paul wrote to Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may, not re I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. 
2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do, do any of you have a night light at home? Why? Why do you have a night light? Because you're going to make a trip in the night. Most of us are. What are you laughing about? <laughs> you're going to the kitchen, right? Or that other place. When is a night light good? It's called a night light for a reason. It helps you see in the dark. It also brings comfort to children who are afraid of the dark when there's a little bit of light in there. Well, the Word of God is like a light. We live in a world of darkness, and it's getting darker by the day. And the Word of God illuminates us, and we're told to let the Word of God dwell in us. The word dwell means to be at home, to live in you. You have a dwelling when you leave today, you're going to eat or you're going home to your dwelling. You have a place where you feel at home. It is your house. The Word of God should be at home in us. Richly means abundantly, more than enough, extravagantly rich. It should permeate every area of our life. To let the Word of Christ richly dwell is identical to Ephesians 5.18 when it talks about being filled with the Spirit. It's almost identical verse. The Word of God in our heart and mind is the handle that the Holy Spirit uses to turn our will. He, we're supposed to be permeated with it, to let it flow in all parts of our life. God wants you to grow. Are you growing in the Lord? The way you grow in the Lord is through the milk and meat of God's Word. If you're one of those people that only verse you know or your only verse, if I were to say, what's your favorite verse? And you say, John 3, 16. I'm not knocking that's a favorite verse, but some people, that's the only verse they know. And, I, and I'm not being critical. But folks, you've got to know more than John 3, 16 to walk in maturity in the Lord. You've got to know his word. We're, we're told, and look back in verse chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians, right there on the same page. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Two metaphors there. The plant, you're rooted. Your roots are deep in him and you're being built up. There's the building metaphor. You're being built up in Jesus. You're not going to grow up in the Lord eating fast food. Some people never read their Bible. Some people just maybe read a thought for the day or maybe they'll hear something. But the Word of God is a weapon. 
What I mean by that for spiritual forces, you've got to have the word of God. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians that it is the offensive weapon that we have. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, when you hear the word sword of the spirit, you probably think of one of those long swords. And a, and a Roman soldier had a long sword that he could swing, but he, it was kind of cumbersome and, you know, it would knock people down or kill them. But the word for sword in Ephesians 6, 8, Ephesians 6, 17 is the word mykyra, which really refers to a dagger. It can be anywhere from six inches to 18 inches long. It was the hand-to-hand combat weapon. The Machaira, the, the sword, they called it, or it's translated sword, but a soldier had to be able to use this in hand-to-hand combat to protect himself. Same with the truth of the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, how can you use it in your everyday life? How can you answer a friend who's asking for advice? Let me give you some tips. It's not original with me. How does the Word of Christ dwell in you? First of all, you listen to the word. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The next thing you do is read the word. Now you're already listening. Some of you are today. I'm not sure about some of you, but most of you are listening. You read the word. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. Study the word. Let me put a commercial in here. We have a lot of Sunday school classes, Bible uh, life groups, we call them, or Sunday school classes. And folks, if you're not in one, you're never going to feel like you're part of this church. In a place this big, if you don't get in a smaller group, and our small groups aren't small, they're like little churches. But not only do you have fellowship and ministry involved, but they study the word of God also. So I encourage you, if you're not in one, please find one and get in it. You're you're thinking, well, I can't do that. I'm too scared. Well, I promise you, they're going to be nice to you. If they're not, you let me know. (laughs) Study the word. Memorize the word. Psalm 119.11, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And finally, meditate on it. Psalm 1, 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That doesn't mean you sit there with some funny posture. It means to chew on it. The word meditate is ruminate, to chew the cud. You think about it, and what will happen? You'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What a picture. In a dry desert area of Israel, this is an appealing word picture, a large tree who's planted, bringing forth fruit. Occasionally, you're driving around out here in West Texas and around among the beautiful forest. Actually, you don't see a forest, but it's impressive to me every now and then to look out in a field and there's one tree out there. And I'm thinking, first of all, how did that tree get out there? And what has that tree endured all this time to stay out there? And I'm always reminded of this verse. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, there were no rivers of water out there, but the fact is you're firmly planted 
You mature in the word. But not only that, there's a message from the word that we're supposed to give to other people. So notice the message from the word, teaching, teaching and admonishing one another. The idea is to encourage other people by sharing the message that you have from God's word. And notice the relationship between allowing God's word to dwell richly in you and you using the word to minister to other people. Because if you're not looking at the word, you can't use the word to help someone else. And Paul added those words, one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another to help someone. If somebody's contemplating a decision or they're going through a difficult time, can you go to the word of God and share with them a verse? Listen, maybe you need to take the problems that you have, write them down, and then get a topical Bible and look up the verses that pertain to whatever area it is you're struggling in, and at least you'll begin to have some verses that will help other people. And the word admonish goes right along with it. When you see somebody headed down the wrong road, you're supposed to correct them with the word of God. Did you know what God's word says? Listen, why are you going this way? The idea is not to bring retribution on them, but to restore them. Sometimes they will listen, sometimes they won't. We're supposed to share the message. When Jesus was tempted, how did he respond to Satan? He used the word of God. Not only that, he quoted out of Deuteronomy. Can you quote out of Deuteronomy? (laughs) Probably not, neither can I. I mean, I got an idea of some spots, but just we don't really think about it. We need to be able to share some scripture with people. And then he says something else is going to happen. It's going to produce some emotion. The word of God can produce emotion in you because he mentions Psalms which were just that, the Psalms put to music. Hymns were an expression of praise to God. Some people uh, believe that Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, were actually early hymns in the first church. They're expressions of praise to God. Spiritual songs emphasize a testimony of what God has done for you. And it says to sing in your heart. Now, that does not mean just use your voice. It's not how. It means to allow your heart and your voice to agree. What I'm singing, my heart is in it. And so when I'm singing praise to God, I believe that in my heart. Jesus paid it all. I believe that in my heart. Some of you need to learn to sing. Well, preacher, I can't sing, so I'm just going to stand there. Well, let me tell you something. God never put a stipulation about how you sound. He looks at the heart. Aren't you glad? One man was told he had a mellow voice. He was real proud of that until he looked it up in the dictionary, and mellow meant overripe and almost rotten. 
<laughs> I love Miss Winslow came storming out of the door, glared at her husband. Why do you always come out on the front porch when I'm singing? Don't you like to hear me sing? His, her, her husband said, it's not that Thelma. It's just that I don't want the neighbors to think I'm hurting you. <laughs> there's none of you that sound that bad. I want to tell you, there's no song like the song of the redeemed. Christ has put a song in our heart. We've got a healthy heart and a holy mind. But then look, we've got a heavenly life in verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One day, God was looking down at earth and saw all the sinful behavior that was going on. He decided to send an angel down to earth to check it out. When the angel came down, he went back. He told God, it's very bad on earth. 95% of the people are misbehaving. There's only 5% that are not. God thought for a moment, I need a second opinion. He sent another angel to get another opinion. He came back and he said, yes, earth is in decline. 95% are misbehaving. 5% are good. God was not pleased, but God wanted to encourage the 5%, so he decided to send an email to encourage them and give them something to help them keep going. Do you know what that email said? Neither do I. I didn't get one either. <laughs> I'll just see if you were still awake. Whatever you do means everything in life that we do, all of it, home, work, friends, all of it, everything we do. So what does it mean to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? First, it means to live with approval. You bear the name of Jesus, would he approve of what you're doing? You see commercials where an athlete will endorse some kind of athletic product. If a golfer, you know, they may endorse a, a driver or a putter. If uh, maybe a baseball player endorses a baseball glove or a bat, they put their name behind it. To live, to whatever we do in word or deed, in the name of Jesus means that I want to live in such a way that the name of Jesus would approve, that he would approve. So anytime you're in one of those gray areas and the Bible doesn't speak specifically about it, you can say, would Jesus approve of what I'm doing? It also means to live with the authority of Jesus. What gives you power over Satan? What gives you power over temptation? It's not because you are special in yourself. It's because you have the power of God living in you. When a policeman who weighs anywhere from 150 to 200 pounds stands out there in the road and puts their hand up and traffic stops, why does traffic stop? Because he's standing there with the authority of the law behind him. Well, when you overcome temptation and Satan tries to get you to do something, 
You have the power of Jesus in your life to overcome the temptation and to say no to Satan and his demons. In fact, Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he said, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you, Luke 10, 19. I've given you authority over the enemy. The devil can't make you do anything. But it also means to live with the acclaim or honor of Christ. Our living is a gift to God. When we've been saved, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And we want him to be glorified. We bear the mark. We bear the name of Jesus. We want our life to bring honor to him. After all, we are his trophy of grace and mercy. We are the ones who've been saved by the grace of God. And our life will bear him out. Does that mean you're perfect? No. Does that mean you'll never sin? No. But we want to live in such a way that characteristically our lives have brought glory to Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that when we sin, he's continuously faithful. If we confess our sin, he's continuously faithful, continuously just to forgive us. There's a difference in being saved. You don't have to be saved over and over and over, but to stay in fellowship with the Lord. I'm married to this lady right here on the front row for 43 years this week. And occasionally, I do something stupid. <laughs> occasionally meaning daily, usually. We don't have to go get married again. But I usually apologize, and the fellowships get sweet again. The same picture in the Christian walk. You live, honor the Lord. If you stumble, if you make a mistake, if you sin... God still loves you. God still holds on to you. The best argument for Christianity are Christians. The best argument against Christianity are those who claim to know Jesus but don't live it. We want our lives to bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you bow your heads with me? If you don't know Jesus, you cannot have the peace of God in your heart. If you're watching us online, you hit that connect button and somebody will help you right now. If you're in this room or if you hear the sound of my voice and you know, you know what, I've been religious most of my life. I've never been saved, you can right now by asking God to forgive you of your sin. You turn from your sin, that's called repentance, and you come to God asking him to forgive you. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sin, lived a sinless life, and died for your sin, and rose again the third day. You place your faith and trust in him. Lord Jesus, I give you my life right now. 
Heavenly Father, I pray for those that need to receive Christ even now as their Savior. I pray that you draw them to you and that you will make yourself real, that they will know how much you love them and that Jesus died for them. I pray for believers who may be going through some difficulty right now and they need the peace that only you can give in their life. I pray that any sin that needs to be confessed, they'll do that and, and make it right with you. I, I pray for those that need a church. If this is the place, God, then you send them here. I pray for those that need to be baptized. They've been saved, but they've not been obedient yet by being baptized. So, Lord, during this time, we ask that your spirit would move, bringing people to you. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just a couple of more minutes, would you quietly stand to your feet with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, praying that people would come. There are pastors here at the front to receive you, to pray with you. We'll not embarrass you. We'll not make you stand up here in front of everyone. We've got some places right outside to talk with you, to pray with you, to help you. Maybe you've got something on your heart. You want them to pray for you. Whatever the decision is, whatever God's leading you to do, you respond to him right now while we wait for just a moment. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.